Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give me grace as I expound this indispensable pillar of the Christian faith. Let us not believe, Lord, what so much of the compromised church teaches, that we can hold to the testimony of John while compromising the testimony of Genesis. Let us hold fast, Lord, that for which we are called fools. And remind us that those who are calling us fools, you called fools long ago. And they remain so now. They who say there is no God and that he is not creator. Help us to celebrate and revel in the work of your creation which is the manifestation of your divine mind. We praise you and we thank you for this, Lord, and we ask for a movement of the Holy Spirit in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts 17, 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul declares the following, and as I, I read you this, understand that herein are the most foundational elements of the Christian worldview. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. As Paul says this, he is standing on Mars Hill. His hearers are there, obviously, as well. And these are the aforementioned men of Athens, more narrowly, They are the Areopagites. And if all of them had simply turned their heads a bit while Paul was speaking, they would have seen on the relatively near horizon the Acropolis, which is a complex of man-made structures of historical and religious significance. And the Acropolis still stands in our day, but even in Paul's day, it was ancient already. At that point, it was five centuries old. And yet its foundations remained intact and the general structures as well. And the fact that it still stood and was in the condition that it was, was an enduring testimony to the wisdom of its primary builder, a man named Pericles. In fact, its foundations were so well laid and its structure so sound that it would remain essentially unaffected by time all the way until a war in the 17th century AD when it was damaged in the ways that we observe it to be today. 
One of the buildings, though, and really the crown of this complex, was Athena's Parthenon, which I've referenced multiple times in this series through Acts 17. And this temple was everything that a god could have asked for in order to reflect their glory. And I say asked here in a manner of speaking, considering that gods of stone cannot ask anything because, as the psalmist said, they have mouths, but they do not speak, because mouths of stone cannot speak. But if Athena had been real and could have spoken, surely she would have praised her worshippers for the choice of locations for her temple. Because first, the Parthenon had prime placement. As they say in business, location, location, location. Well, this is a coveted location indeed. It was in an extremely well-trafficked place, and it towered above the ground below in full view of her worshippers and in full view of those who were not yet her worshippers. And these were enabled to see her grandeur manifest in her temple and so come to the faith. So simply by virtue of where this temple was, it was a tremendous tool of evangelism. And it also projected tremendous power on her behalf, which is an attractive attribute to idolaters of every age. And it did project this power because it was moored into and made out of rock. And this temple also bespoke great wisdom, which was supposed to be Athena's highest virtue. She was the goddess of wisdom. And it accomplished this through the display of a then and, and even perhaps now almost unrivaled architectural acumen. Perhaps the temple itself was even seen as an impartation of divine wisdom from Athena to her devoted, who then used the wisdom that she had granted them to construct this monument to her, i.e. the benevolent gift of wisdom from the all-wise benefactor of wisdom was set on display for all the world to see. So the very presence of her temple and the implications of its presence in light of the mist surrounding her offer then a seductive yet satanic counterfeit to James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you replace there the God with a capital G, with Athena, all of her worshippers would have agreed heartily. And that was the point. And the temple helped make that point, and that is why they worshipped her. The construction of Athena's temple convinced the world that the fear of Athena was the beginning of wisdom. But there the Athenian temple was, nevertheless, set, set atop the Acropolis as its most impressive element, when the Apostle Paul speaks of a vastly greater temple formed by a vastly greater God, testifying to a vastly greater wisdom. And this is not a temple that amounts to a frozen monument. It is a fluid cathedral, and through its constant changes, it demonstrates what the showbread in the Israelite tabernacle was intended to. Not that God needed something, not that God required that to sustain his being, but that God was alive. Bread signified life, and the life of God was manifest in that place in a special way. And so it is with creation and the constant changes that it undergoes. The life of God is manifest here. His life is flowing through his creation. Ergo, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Temples made of stone stand still. And whatever wisdom they reflect is a wisdom now past. But God's creation speaks in a clarion way to his special act of creation in the past. But it is always present at the same time. And in the changing of his creation from moment to moment, we see an ever-changing temple that reveals an unchanging God. 
and it is a temple not made by human hands, but willed into reality by man's true and only creator. Man did not plot and plan and conceive and carry out the formation of this world, nor its constant ongoing shaping and reshaping, owe in any way to the contributions of any man. Rather, God spoke and it was established, and God is still speaking, and so it is preserved. And an ever-changing creation irrefutably demonstrates that the voice of God remains and that irrespective man's rebellion, nature still knows her creator, and she dares not deny his commands. So depending on his commands and what they are on a given day, her ceiling is blue or maybe gray, or maybe more clear, or maybe decorated with white clouds, no two of which have ever been the same. And they are always in a state of movement. These are being sculpted by God's winds in real time, all the time. Sometimes the ceiling of God's temple is variegated with colors of the rainbow. Whether they are seen in a rainbow or they are cast across the whole sky at the time of sunset or sunrise. And no two of these have ever been exactly the same either. And the ceiling isn't made of cold stone. Rather, it is itself a habitation for life, for birds that God taught to fly, and for bees, and for butterflies, and, and, and. Or else, God draws the blinds, and the ceiling of his Sistine becomes the cosmos at night, by which the great Yahweh is clothed with splendor and majesty, wrapping himself with light as with a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain, Psalm 104. And its walls and pillars are sometimes the mountains perhaps say Mount Olympus in Greece or Mount Mizar of the greater peaks of Hermon of Psalm 42 or the cedars of Lebanon of Psalm 29 or the century and a half old elm just behind my house or the rolling hills in southern Ohio that from the vantage of a person seem to touch the sky and hold it up. Yes, all of these too are habitations for life like organismic showbread Mountains are home to an ecosystem all their own. The trees are shelter for the birds. Their sap is food for the insects that move up their trunks and out onto their branches. And what of the foundations of God's temple? Well, eons before Pericles taught slaves how to make a footer out of Acropolis Hill. Yahweh taught Acropolis Hill how to rise from the sea beneath it. As in the waters were standing above the mountains, at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away in alarm. The mountains went up, the valleys went down to the place which you founded for them. That is Psalm 104, also in verses 6 and 7. And Yahweh also taught the seas to remain. Verse 9 of the same psalm. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. And as it was with the ceiling and the pillars and the walls of creation... It is far more so with the floors of God's cathedral. The very ground itself breathes through the plants that supply breath to all else. And the creatures that live on the earth take cover from the plants and draw life from them until they themselves become plants. And God's foundations don't just support life on their surface, they have life in every strata. And if you dig down, you'll see that each layer contains worlds beneath our world that man cannot even see the extent of, not even now. Well, I think I can say that we have vastly exceeded here Athena's capacity, but for Yahweh, 
Still, we are thinking too small. Job 26.7, he stretches out the north over what is formless and hangs the earth on nothing. So Athena requires for her temple the foundation that Yahweh has built to be her foundation. And yet Yahweh hangs the earth on nothing because, as it turns out, he is the foundation of everything. And speaking of Job, I'd like to perform an exercise with all of you. It's inspired by him. Really, though, inspired by God as he dealt with him. And this is based upon the point in the book where Job stopped asking questions per se and started questioning instead God himself. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to take a passage that you're all, I think, well familiar with and you know was spoken originally to Job. But when we get to those personal pronouns or any like reference, I want you to insert instead men of Athens, those from Acts 17, 22. Okay, so here we go. Job 38, and we're going to start in verse 2. Who is this? Again, you're going to insert here, men of Athens. So who is this, men of Athens? that darken my counsel by words without knowledge. Now gird up your loins like men, and I will ask you, and you will make me know. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment in dense gloom, its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Yahweh answers, Have you? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might seize the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal. And they stand forth like clothing. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the arm raised high is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you carefully considered the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to where the light dwells? And darkness, where is its place? that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a conduit for the flood or away for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the growth of grass to sprout. Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the, do the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is interlocked. Can you bind the chains? of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the statutes of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Can you raise your voice up to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? 
Who has given wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? Now, especially in light of the beauty and the forceful brilliance of what I just read, I'm going to beg your pardon for this digression. Nevertheless, I'm going to ask you, have you ever revisited a place that was familiar to you from childhood but that you hadn't been at since you were a child? You know what I'm talking about? And you enter into this place and you think to yourself, wow, this seemed so much bigger when I was so much smaller. And I ask you that because it seems to me that something like that just happened to the Parthenon as we read the words of God himself concerning his own creation. Which I think is a big part of Paul's point in raising God as creator in Acts 17. Look at what man has built and how grand it is. No, no, no. Look at all that it sets upon. And consider he who built all of that. Suddenly Athena's temple, still seen as a wonder of human ingenuity, no doubt, but of divine genius. Not divinely inspired in light of us being made in God's image, even though in rebellion to him, but, but as existing in that category of insight that is itself uniquely divine, I don't think so. Not close. Not when the divine being is Elohim and his creation is the standard of his divine genius and of divine genius, period. Isn't it all so absurd? Aren't we absurd? We see Athena's temple and we are more impressed by it than its natural setting, in which, rightly seen, it becomes one small feature on an inexhaustible landscape. We see a painting of God's finger touching Adam, and we are more moved by the depiction than the reality of which it bespeaks. Behold the statue of David. No, how about behold the God who drew David's race from the dust? I will say, though, that I am happy to report that with respect to at least Athena and her supposed wisdom, on account of that war in the 17th century, any notion of her eternality or that of her wisdom is as shaken as the foundations of her temple, which seems to be, to me, an application of Psalm 18, 7 through 8. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Oh, indeed, he was angry with respect to the idolatry of that place and because of who he is, that meant that she was no more. Although, in truth, Athena was no more a long time before that because in perhaps the greatest example of upcycling ever, the Parthenon was converted over to a Christian church in the 6th century AD. Perhaps that's an application then of the wealth of the wicked and their temples being stored up for the righteous. However, unfortunately, the sin of Athena remains where the direct worship of her does not and that is idolatry manifests firstly as the rejection of creator God, which is exactly how Paul spoke of this in Romans 1. And we're going to look there. We're going to start in verse 18, and we will skim but stopping to expound when it is helpful to do so. Verse 18 of Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What I want you to note from that is that suppression necessitates possession to some degree. You cannot suppress that which you have no contact with. So the classic example that has been offered with respect to this is you in a swimming pool when you were a kid with a beach ball. 
and you take that beach ball and you shove it down because you're playing on top of it or whatever and using it as a float. But unless you are actively pushing down upon that at all times, it will pop back up. Such is the nature of their knowledge of God. It is not something that they can push down and then move past it. It is something that requires active suppression all the time. And that's because it's evident. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, evident is synonymous with obvious. The Epicureans, as I mentioned in brief last week, look at nature and they believe that all that is always had been. All the material universe had already existed. It was just reconstituted into its present form. But when they look at Athena's temple, they know that at a point in the past, it wasn't. And that in order for it to now be, it must have at a former point been made. So what accounts for that absurd disconnect? Well, sin. That's it. Only sin. This is evident and obvious, and yet it is suppressed in unrighteousness or on account of sin. God is on the narrow path, but because they hate the narrow path, they hate God. So get rid of God and you get rid of the narrow path i.e. rid yourself of the rule maker and you rid yourself of the rules. These so-called vaunted intellectuals are really just children who hate creation's father and so refuse to live under his rule and so they invented a never-never land, which is an absurd construct of their imagination. But hatred provides a powerful motivation toward anything other than God, no matter how absurd. It is, they will still track towards it. But they cannot acknowledge that it is hatred that motivates them because if God is hated, well then God is. And they cannot have that. So they subscribe instead to a circumvention of God as creator, which for the Epicureans was matter being eternal. And for the God-haters at present, it is evolution spawned from the Big Bang. But they are held very, very accountable for this rejection. And suppression. Continuing in verse 20, since, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, Paul in this passage speaks generally of all people, so this pertains to those who have heard the gospel and those who have not. They are all responsible to God, whether hearing or not hearing, because they have seen in creation the reality of his presence and they no longer have any justification therefore for rejecting him and so observation of nature by god's image bearers cannot save but it can and it does leave us condemned now in addition to this and not in contradiction paul in Acts 17 says that those outside quote the times of ignorance who are therefore presented not only with the fact of creation and thus creation's God, but also the resurrection of God's Son, are doubly accountable to God. Creation, though, remains the foundation of accountability. Whereas living in a post-resurrection world where the reality of the resurrection is discoverable to anybody willing to search the matter out, amplifies that existing accountability to its furthest point. But you need to understand that this is, and you are, and therefore he is, is the only rational position possible. And on this, I'd like to park with you for a moment. Okay, we are told that acknowledging supernatural as a category is superstitious. And I raise this from the example of Sam Harris and him 
you know, rejecting this and, and relegating this to the category of lesser minds that therefore subscribe to religion as a way of accounting for things that their uh, inferior intellects could not otherwise account for. That's the idea. But bearing this concept in mind of supernaturality, we can't accept it, we reject it. I want to give you the evolutionist concept of the origin of the universe. Okay, simply stated, it was not, and then it was. Okay. Is that a natural process? No. Because everything in nature has an antecedent, right? Every consequence has a cause. So, clearly, that's not itself natural. But creation, they say, did not have a cause. Not at least a kind that presently exists in nature to observe. So then, whatever accounts for the origins of the universe must be unnatural. And what could we call this unnatural something? Could we call it extra natural? Could we maybe call it natural plus? I mean, I'm struggling here to find a term that they find acceptable, but it seems to me that I keep coming back to this term supernatural because it probably pervades this concept best. So in summary, whatever gave birth to the universe because it did not use natural processes must be unlike anything else in nature by its nature, or is it not obvious that whatever transcends nature cannot itself be natural? So this force must be, maybe, shall we say, altogether other. Now, I don't know of a broadly accepted secular term for this altogether otherness, and I also don't know why there would be one, because according to what they say, if it doesn't exist in nature, it doesn't exist at all. But I do know of a theological term that conveys this well, and that is holy. And certainly that is a reference to moral purity, but it goes far beyond that sphere as well. And this otherness applied to God's relationship to the natural world um, means that he is, unlike nature, not material, which is to say, invisible. As in, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now, all of us have some degree of power. And the power that we possess is seen in the throwing of a ball perhaps, in the fact that we are able to move the ball a certain distance, or even just the strength that we exhibit, that we have in our bodies as we get up from our chairs and walk about the room. But God, because he is holy, because he is altogether other, has no body, and therefore his power cannot be seen by natural things without nature. That's the reason he created the natural world and all that lives in it, so that his image bearers born into nature could see he who exists outside of nature with their natural eyes as he manifests his presence in the natural realm. And also he can create nature because he is not of nature and thus he is not bound by nature. So he is and he must be that essential other. All of this to say, if I can put it simply, when you say because God made it, in answer to the great how of creation, you have canceled out all of the so-called wisdom of the pagans and Darwin and all of his acolytes for all time. And when you hear them say, but nature can account for nature, you say, no, it cannot. And why can't it? Because it hasn't, ever. And if science from the Latin scientia, meaning certain knowledge, is even worthy of being considered knowledge, then it must have some basis far beyond 
Uh, we want to believe it because we hate the alternative who is God, and so we do. Nature, it could be falsely but somewhat rationally argued, could at best rearrange the deck chairs. Okay, it cannot do this. Christ sustains all that is, but for the sake of argument, let's grant this for a moment, that nature could take what existed and put it in a different form and reconstitute it. What nature still could definitely not do, even if we did grant this, and so it has never been observed doing, is making the deck and the chairs, or in fact, even a small thing down to the lowest levels of creation that human beings at present can observe. So maybe before we ascribe everything to nothing, we ought to just seek to find something, anything at all, in order to justify that concept. I'd settle for a single molecule that was self-created. Now, even if they did provide this evidence, that would hardly prove the point that the cosmos spawned from nothing, but it would at least start to prove the category, but they don't even have that. I've taken a long time to say what I've just said, but perhaps nothing that I've ever said from this pulpit was ever more reasonable than what I've just offered you. And I'm not close to the only one who's ever noted this. All I have done here is related in my own way, but it is scandalously inevitable. To the point, and I almost hate to have taken so long to have said it. But here it is in the simplest terms, and I hope not patronizing ones, and applied to you personally. If there ain't nobody like you who can make you, then there's got to be somebody unlike you who did. I think that that is eminently reasonable. Question then becomes, if it, is a, if it is so reasonable, then why is it rejected? And I would say to you that its reasonability is precisely the reason why it is rejected and why it has no purchase amongst wicked men, because they are unreasonable. And not unreasonable as we use it in common conversation but unreasonable according to its most literal definition, which is incapable of reasoning. Romans 1, 21 through 25. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that is the why that so many Christians never even seek a knowledge of. And so because they don't, the fool is counted wise because we assume that he's using his mind to rebel against God when in fact he is rebelling against his own mind in order to rebel against God. Or else what is happening back in verse 18, if not that, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Truth is the fruit of reason and reason is a faculty of the mind. And so no reason means that what is causing the error is something that is also beyond nature. If what is obvious is obvious as it is, and if God's image bearers are intelligent as we are, then nothing stemming first from our physical natures could be the cause of this rejection of truth. So our natures then have to be more than natural. They too must be supernatural, and they are because Acts 17, 28, and 29, we are his offspring is God's. 
Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of men. And on this, I'd uh, ask you to allow me another digression. I need to ask the present day atheist something. I know none of you are. But I ask nonetheless in this setting, why is it that everyone is worshiping if there is nobody to worship? And what would their answer to this be? It would be, well, because we humans have adopted myths to account for the gaps in our understanding, but we should reject these things because they stunt our advancement as a species, you know, preventing scientific advancement by rejecting scientific methods in favor of superstitions. Well, wait a minute, though, on that one. I know that is the canned line that's regurgitated ad nauseum, but what they are saying is that I, along with almost all the rest of humanity in the past and still present, confess to worshiping some concept of a deity or many, and we have adopted these myths in order to make sense out of what we cannot make sense of. And also, this false belief uh, is hurting us. Well, isn't the point of evolution to advance us as a species? And so this being true, why then did we adopt these regressive, harmful to our advancement religious theories in the first place? If atheism aids our success as humans, why do we all cling to God and gods? If it harms us, why do we continue? Isn't that counter to the interests of evolution, which has as its driver survival of the fittest? Because according to them, the fittest are also the godless. I also feel compelled to note that the most successful civilization in the history of the world was based exclusively on Christianity, which is Western civilization. I guess what I'm saying is that if evolution serves our success and our success has never been served so well as it has been by the foundation set by Christianity, shouldn't they repent and believe the gospel anyways? Because atheism had a civilization and it was communism and it was cast abroad and it killed 100 million people in the 20th century. That doesn't seem to be helping our species. Perhaps they should all then evolve into Christians. And all of this leads me to an abrupt transition. And that is, why doesn't Paul debate creation? Why doesn't Peter debate creation? Why doesn't anybody in the Bible ever debate creation? Why instead do they simply declare? Well, because there is no reasoning reasonable things to unreasonable people. This being your situation, here is the only reasonable response, as well as more predicate for it. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Uh, through the book of Acts, and especially as of late, I have labored the point that the Christian faith is a thinking faith. Because we are intellectual beings and God has revealed knowledge, not feelings. But that does not mean that we argue all day long with pagans about the existence of God and the fact that he created all things. And this for the same reason that I never debated with any of my children while they were toddlers about whether or not they would obey me. Because if I engage in the debate, I have acknowledged that there is a debate, which by virtue of my God-given authority over them is not true. Likewise, I don't debate the existence of creator God with pagans because the very debate itself would be a tacit admission that such a debate is warranted when it is not. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Not a debate, a declaration. And they would say that that right there is a rejection of science. And I would say to them that that is a category error. My acceptance of that is not proven or disproven by science. I accept that on the basis of it being a historical account that is reliable. And history is, in fact, the field of study that the origins of the universe properly belongs to in the first place. Not science. If it happened at a point in the past, in order to know it, in order to be able to understand what actually occurred there, you'd have to have actually been there or had testimony from somebody who was. And the only person of whom that is true, or being, would be Yahweh. And he gave his testimony. It's Genesis chapter 1. And it's supported everywhere else in Scripture. Think about history, history as, a, as a study, as a discipline. If you have read much about relatively recent events in the history of our race, World War II, then you know that with respect to specific incidents that occurred there, there are many different perspectives about what actually happened. Even now, we're not even a century beyond that. Civil War, it's the same thing. Many different perspectives on many different events and a lack of certainty from one historian to the next that's the nature of history. It requires an analysis of all kinds of variables that have to be accounted for in a certain way, and there are all kinds of gaps which make it exceedingly unreliable, as the more humble historians that I've heard speak on this have acknowledged. But they want me to accept a testimony coming from them of what supposedly happened 13 to 26 billion years ago. We can't agree on the events of World War II, and yet we will come to consensus on what happened eons and eons and eons ago. I'd submit to you that the only thing that could account for that consensus would be faith, their faith, and I don't share that faith. I am not of the same religion, so I will not be accepting their account. I will put the creation account into its proper category, which is not science, it is history. And I will not accept the so-called science that they have discovered, which supports the thesis that they began with in the first place. In closing, I will appeal to your reason, Christian. 
And I'll appeal to reason from you because you actually have it because it was a gift to you by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Rationally speaking, there are only two options with the event of creation. Either in the one event, you can trust the testimony of God, or if not, you can despair of all hope of ever coming to any reliable conclusions about the origin of an event that vastly predates us all. Those are your only two options. Because otherwise you're at the mercy of people who, again, barely know what happened decades ago and can barely reach consensus on it to tell you what happened at the beginning of all things. So if God did not tell us, we can't know anyhow. So this means that the questions Job posited then would apply to everybody who questions Job's God and questions him as creator. Where were you when Yahweh laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you know understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud, its garment and dense gloom, its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Yahweh answers, Have you? Have you? Do you? No, you don't. Because you're a foolish infant, so hopped up on vanity that you would deign to understand the mysteries of the universe as though you could acquire such knowledge in your own fleeting existence, which began decades ago. And you who have been here, who are a vapor, will dethrone the God who is from everlasting with your great wisdom. No, you won't. And I'm going to give you a critical aside here before I finish, because I wouldn't feel right about finishing before I said this. You cannot combine any aspect of their position with a Christian position because these foundations that we've been discussing today are biblical creation. They forsake all of that. And so whatever else they build is built off of that crooked and broken foundation. Whatever is downstream of that is unreliable. So here what I'm speaking to is something called theistic evolution. This is why all of that is to be rejected. If the unbeliever who is a scientist makes an observation that's clearly consistent with the natural world, say the migration pattern of birds, fine. Because that has nothing to do with where those birds came from or why they have come. But anything that is downstream of evolution is to be utterly rejected by us and its theory of origins, which is the Big Bang. If it is contingent upon something false, then it itself is false. So reject all of that. And all of this said, remember that you are to answer the fool by declaring the truth. But you're not to answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself be like him. Rather, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We have answered them according to their folly for a very long time, and that is why they have come to believe that they are so wise when somebody should have just stood up a long time ago and said, where did that come from? Yeah, okay, but where did that come from? Yeah, okay, but where did that come from? And just kept asking the same simple questions because they have no answer to them. And their lack of knowledge is veiled thinly 
by use of academic terms that they wield to confuse people. There is no substance to what they say. Trust the word of God. Declare this as your foundation. Because the devil knows what so many who claim the name of Christ don't, which is that if you sacrifice Genesis as a foundation, you have also given them John. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the creator of all things, Lord. We thank you that you allow us to serve you and to worship you. We thank you that you have opened the eyes of those who belong to you so that when we look out into creation, we don't see an accident. We don't see the fruit of chaos, but we see the fruit of a father over all creation and a father spiritually over his people, the covenant that you made with us through Christ, who sustains all things by the word of his power. We praise you and we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.